Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes with this teaching that is entitled Despair and Hope. We have been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is part four of four. Now, the first week, we interviewed my atheist friend from college, Tyler Fullerton, and he shared what it was like to lose faith in God and where that has left him in his life now. Then two weeks ago, we asked three questions about the book of Ecclesiastes as we began to study it. The first question is, when was Ecclesiastes written? The second question is, who wrote Ecclesiastes? And the third is, what is the thesis of Ecclesiastes? So our best guess is that Ecclesiastes was probably written sometime around 400 BCE in a place that is very near to Jerusalem, which shifts our focus then to who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you listened two weeks ago, you know that the best answer we can come up with is that we do not know. However, the book of Ecclesiastes is built around two voices, the voice of the authoress who opens and closes the book of Ecclesiastes and the main speaker, Kohelet, who is a very wise and rich king. Now, to give you an idea of the disparity between these two characters, the authoress speaks for only seven verses, while Kohelet speaks for 215 verses. Which leads us to the third question, which is, what is the thesis statement of Ecclesiastes? Well, that is found in verse 2, as well as chapter 12, verse 8. When Kohelet says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, vanity is translated from the Hebrew word hevel, and hevel has a much stronger negative connotation than the English word vanity. This is why some translations translate hevel as meaningless. So Kohelet is saying meaningless of meaningless, all is meaningless. And one biblical scholar that I read translates hevel as stupid. So stupid of stupids, all is stupid. In other words, the thesis statement of Ecclesiastes is Kohelet telling us that life is a stupid and meaningless exercise in vanity. Now, while this is a, um, well, unhappy thesis statement, most of us are put off by this, but a good English teacher would hear this thesis statement and say, you need to support your thesis statement, Kohelet. So we talked about last week how Kohelet supports this idea that life is a stupid and meaningless exercise in vanity. And when you look at all of Kohelet's writings, basically they all have the same point. And that point is this, because no matter what we do, we are all going to die. In other words, Kohelet supports his thesis by looking at the universal human condition of death and saying that is why this life is meaningless. Which brings us to chapter 3 today. Now, chapter 3 is perhaps the most famous passage in all of Ecclesiastes. However, it is often misunderstood or misused. When people point to Ecclesiastes 3, they look at these words and they say, oh, these are words that are optimistic and hopeful. They are words that remind us that while there is suffering, there is also joy. And the author, Kohelet, is trying to tell us that this season of sorrow or suffering will to pass. But when you consider Kohelet's words in their context, Kohelet is not trying to offer encouragement or comfort. Rather, Kohelet is writing words of despair. 
The biblical scholar Peter Enns best sums it up in his commentary, The Book of Ecclesiastes, by saying these words. Ecclesiastes 3, 2 to 8 are without profit, and these tasks of planting, uprooting, living, dying, dancing, mourning, and so on are all God's fault. In other words, what we're about to read is not Kohelet trying to tell us, hey, it's going to be okay. Rather, Kohelet is trying to look at people who are perfectly content or happy and saying, how can you enjoy the finer things of life when there is so much heartache and suffering? So with that in mind, I'd like to turn to Ecclesiastes 3 and read the words of Kohelet. And I'd invite you to think about your own life and what it means to be alive on this planet. Kohelet writes, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Kohelet then wraps up these thoughts with verse 11 by saying these words, God has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Kohelet peers into the depths of human existence. He looks at life all around him. He looks at the death that all of this life will incur. And he has this sense that he wants to know answers. Why is it that these bad things happen? What's the point of this life? Is there really God? And Kohelet looks at these questions and realizes that toward the end of his life, he will never have the answers he so desperately desires. And because of this, he points to God and says, this is all God's fault. God, according to Kohelet, is cruel. Because God has created these human beings with these longings to know answers to questions they are always asking. And God makes these answers simply unknowable. When you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, what Kohelet is essentially saying is this idea that God is cruel and I hate the very nature of life and I blame God for all of this. Now, you may be quick to say, oh, Craig, you don't need to say that Kohelet hates life. That seems a bit extreme, to which I would point to the previous chapter 2, verse 17, when he writes, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. And in the previous chapter, he writes these famous words when he says, The people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. No matter what we do, Kohelet says, we will all be forgotten before long. And this all ties back to his thesis because this is a well-written, structured, 
piece of literature. And his thesis is vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And if I could summarize all of Kohelet's writings over 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes, I think there are three main points that build on one another. The first point you will come across is that your life is an exercise in vanity. The second point is that no matter what you do, you and everyone else you love will die. And the third point is that we are created by, placed on, and then trapped in this body on this earth by a cruel God. So when you read this as a Christian living in 2019 in the Bible, you may be thinking to yourself, who gave this guy an opportunity to speak? This guy, Kohelet, is a major bummer. Not only that, but this is in the Bible, and the Bible is supposed to profess the goodness, the glory, the steadfastness of God. And instead, we get this guy, Kohelet, who stands up and says, yeah, God is ultimately cruel. We're all going to die. Everything you're working for is pointless. These three foundational claims of the book of Ecclesiastes are rather anti-Christian, aren't they? After all, Christians don't profess to the world that God is cruel. Christians profess to the world that God is good. Christians don't tell you that you are going to die. Christians instead tell you that you can live forever. Christians don't tell the world that all of your work is a vanity and chasing of the wind. Rather, Christians tell you that your life has a tremendous amount of purpose. Now, I can't say the word purpose in Christian circles without drawing to mind the work of one man. Pastor Rick Warren at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, not too far from where Paradox meets, is known for coining the term of purpose because of his book that came out in 2002, The Purpose Driven Life. In this book, he talks about how you and I and every human being was created for a divine purpose. Then in 2008, Rick Warren was asked to come and give a TED Talk, one of the most prestigious platforms in America today. And his TED Talk was titled, A Life of Purpose. Additionally, if you were to go visit Rick Warren's church, you would exit the freeway and then turn left on Purpose Drive to get into campus. And here's Saddleback Church, one of the largest churches in North America, built around this idea that every person has a purpose. And they have a Bible just like you and me. And in that Bible, there's this book that says, well, no, there's no, there's no purpose. There's no purpose to life. Ecclesiastes is like an unwelcome house guest who won't let you forget the problems and the shortcomings of your faith. So Christians love to talk about how we have a purpose and Ecclesiastes loves to talk about how we don't have a purpose. Now, if you can somehow get Christians to be off the record and you can get them to speak in a way that there is no consequence for them being honest, I have a feeling that most Christians would read the book of Ecclesiastes, look at you and say something like this. I mean... Kohelet's not all wrong, right? Eventually, we are all going to die. Now, if another Christian is hearing this Christian being honest, they may stand up and interject and say, no, 
No, don't say that. We aren't all going to die because Jesus is coming back soon. In fact, I believe that Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. To which the honest Christian may say, amen, I believe it too. But once that other Christian leaves, the honest Christian would then turn to you and say, yeah, but think of how many generations before us have said the same thing. And then they have died as well. For all Christians up until this point, they have all held the belief that Jesus is coming back soon. And yet they all have died. So while Ecclesiastes and Kohelet don't appear to belong in the Bible, you can't really fault them for being honest, can you? Because Kohelet points out that we're all going to die eventually. And I mean, he's not wrong. Now it's here that you may be listening to this podcast and thinking to yourself, man, talking about our eventual deaths is depressing. To which I picture Kohelet showing up and saying, right? That's exactly what I'm writing about. Now, humans don't like to talk about the fact that we're eventually all going to die. We like to distract ourselves and take our minds off the fact that we at some point will be dust returned to dust. And so we go to church every weekend and at church, we hear about the pastor telling us that we are going to heaven and that Jesus is coming back soon and we'd love to say amen. And the church is driven by and obsessed with the question, is life after death possible? Are you depressed that you're going to die? Well, we believe that life after death is possible. Come this Saturday or Sunday and hear a message where we try to answer your question about is life after death possible? Now, Kohelet, if he were still alive, would hear that question today and he would look back at his own life. Kohelet, we must remember, was considered very wise and had all kinds of women and riches and buildings and power and influence. He lived the dream. He had all that life could possibly offer. And in the hallways of opulent palaces, Kohelet comes to the conclusion that all of life is vanity. So when the church is asking the question, is life after death possible? I picture Kohelet saying, who cares? I mean, ugh, more life? Oh, it's better to be dead than it is to be alive, he writes. So don't give me more life because this life is simply empty. Now, it's here that I have to admit that when I announced that we were doing the book of Ecclesiastes at Paradox, I had more than three people come up to me and say, oh, thank goodness we're doing Ecclesiastes. That's my favorite book of the Bible. Now, I was rather stunned to hear that because <laughs> Ecclesiastes is rather difficult to read. Life is empty. Life is meaningless. And people at Paradox said that that's my jam. Now, I would ask them why they liked Ecclesiastes so much, and they would respond with something like this. It's so honest. It's so real. I struggle with the same questions that the author was asking. And when I hear those points about Ecclesiastes, and the fact that people go to most churches and hear the question, is life after death possible? 
Ecclesiastes is the one that's honest and willing to stand up and say, who cares if it is, if you're miserable now. And Ecclesiastes fundamentally shifts the question from is life after death possible to the question is life before death possible? Is it possible to find a meaningful, happy, loving, realistic, and wonderful existence before we die? Because if it's not, well, then who cares if we live after we die? And Ecclesiastes asks everyone who is listening, who is reading these words, to ultimately consider their own mortality, to put their feet in their grave and begin to ask really difficult questions about what life is in the face of death. Now, Kohelet comes to the conclusion by the fact that he will die, that life is ultimately an exercise in vanity. But what if there were people who didn't view life that way? Who, when they considered their own mortality, found something quite different than despair. Here are the stories of five different people considering their mortality. The first is Dr. James Cohn, who in his landmark work, Black Theology and Black Power in 1969, said these words to white Christians who were criticizing African-Americans who were rioting and rebelling against the state. He writes, to be human is to find something worth dying for. He goes on to say, when the black man rebels at the risk of death, he forces white society to look at him, to recognize him, to take his being into account, to admit that he is. This is black power. The power of the black man to say yes to his own black being and to make the other accept him or be prepared for a struggle. Which brings us back to that first sentence that I read. To be human is to find something worth dying for. In other words, we cannot fully be alive until we accept that there are things in our lives that are worth giving up all of our life for. Otherwise, we will find the same thing that Kohelet found, which is that life is an empty and meaningless endeavor in vanity. Which brings us to the second person. In perhaps her most famous poem, Mary Oliver considers all of the life that is around her. She looks at life teeming with beauty and also with sorrow. And how wonderful it is to be alive and how terrible it is for things to die. She wraps all of these thoughts up in this poem with these last four lines. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Mary Oliver looks around at the massive amounts of death that were so frustrating to Kohelet. And what she sees is the fact that we are finite creatures brings immense value to the decisions and the lives that we lead. Rather than being discouraged by the fact that we don't go on forever, she looks at the short nature of our existence and says, oh, this life is wild and this life is precious and you only get one of them. The third story comes from a young woman, Malala Yousafzai, 
who insisted that she was worthy of education. Now, people did not want women to be educated in her home country, but she continued to march on, continued to go to school despite vocal protests and anger from her local government, the Taliban. Eventually, the Taliban became so angry that they decided they needed to assassinate Malala Yousafzai. So they hired a hitman to ambush Malala Yousafzai, and he did. The hitman pulled out a gun and shot Malala Yousafzai in the head. And somehow, Malala survived. She went through recovery. She has some lasting damage. But her brain and her ability to think and vocalize and move are remain intact. Now, in her book, she writes about what it's like to live after someone has shot you in the head. She talks about how she is filled with fear at times that people in large crowds are approaching her with a gun. And how she talks about getting over this fear is she writes these words. She says, I told myself, Malala, you have already faced death. This is your second life. Don't be afraid. If you are afraid, you cannot move forward. Now that Malala is aware that she can die or be attacked or assassinated at any moment, she understands that it's more important than ever to live without fear. Which brings us to the fourth story. The fourth story takes place in Yosemite National Park with a rock climber, Alex Honnold, and the crown jewel of all rock climbing in the world, El Capitan. Now, I saw a number of films in 2018, but my favorite film by far was the film Free Solo. Free Solo revolves around Alex Honnold's quest to become the first human being to free solo El Capitan. Now, what does free solo mean? Well, I did not know before I watched the movie, but to free solo means that you climb by yourself without any ropes or safety equipment. Now, if this sounds insane to you, you're starting to understand the concept of what this movie actually is. <laughs> because as I'm telling you this story, my palms begin to sweat and my feet begin to sweat because it is just one of the most frightening, harrowing, cinematic adventures you could ever possibly go on. And the first hour of the movie is the filmmakers trying to help us understand the psyche behind why someone on earth would do this. <laughs> Why would they climb and put themselves at risk, like extreme risk, uh, just for the sake of saying they had done something? The second half of the film, the last 40 minutes, are about Alex Honnold actually attempting to climb and do this free solo. Now, a bit of a spoiler alert, he does not die, um, which is why he can do interviews after this film was made. And one of those interviews was with Rolling Stone and they asked him some questions and he responded by saying, look, I've done a lot of interviews where people have asked me if I've considered the fact that I could die while I'm free soloing. And sometimes I'll say back to them, well, have you? <laughs> Which is just an amazing comeback. Here people are so worried that Alex Honnold will in fact die and he responds by saying, yeah, but you will too. Doesn't that shape the way that you live and the decisions that you make? And what I love about the movie Free Solo is the fact that it forces anyone who watches it to consider their own mortality and to consider the fact that they will die and to ask themselves the questions, so therefore, what do I want to do before I die? 
Now, not many people say, because I'm going to die, I want a free solo El Capitan. But at the same time, there is an urgency that is brought about by this question and this reality that we are all going to die eventually. And this leads to our fifth story. Now, the fifth story is with my friend Tyler, who was at Paradox on March 2. And I asked him a question about hope. I said, Tyler, one thing I hear often about atheists is that they don't have any hope. Do you consider yourself a hopeful person? And if so, where do you draw that hope from? And Tyler responded by saying these words. He said, are you more concerned about where you are going to be when you're dead? Or are you more concerned about what your children are going to be when you're dead? At our core, it does feel nice to think that there is this heaven, but really, don't you care more about the people around you and helping them to be better? And so Tyler looks at this whole belief structure of Christianity, which many Christians would say the point is to get to the bonus level, to get to the afterlife, to get to heaven, and then you can live after death. But Tyler says, it sounds like a really selfish endeavor, doesn't it? Because it's all about making sure that you're okay. And yeah, you'd like it if other people could join you. But who cares what you do as long as you make it into heaven? And when Tyler considers his own mortality, he has this really strong sense that it should drive us to be more compassionate and kind and considerate of others rather than driving us toward being more selfish. And when you consider these five lives and these five stories in contrast with Kohelet, who stands before them and says, I am filled with despair when I consider my own death. I contrast the words in Ecclesiastes with the work and words of these five different people. From James Cone to Mary Oliver to Malala Yousafzai to Alex Honnold and Tyler Fullerton. Now these five stories tell us a very different understanding of what happens when they become aware of the same things that Kohelet became aware of. These five stories though say, oh no, no you don't need to be filled with despair. Rather, you can find something else entirely. And the truth that these five stories point to is that there is an abundance of inspiration when we embrace our own mortality. When we accept the fact that we are going to die, you and I can find inspiration. Now, it's here that you may say to yourself, oh, Craig, that's a nice thought that we can somehow be inspired by being okay or accepting the fact that we will die. But while that is a nice thought, it's not a Christian thought. I mean, Christians shouldn't make peace with the fact that they're going to die. Christians should turn their eyes toward Jesus and stand up boldly and say, we don't have to die. If we can believe, then God will come back soon and take us home and we don't have to suffer. To accept and embrace that we are mortal human beings and that we are going to die is in fact anti-Christian, Craig. If someone said these things to me, I would respond by turning to the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark's Gospel is my favorite book in the Bible. And the book is structured around two major events. The first one happens in Mark chapter 8, and the second one happens in Mark 15. 
we're going to turn our attention to Mark 8, to this seminal moment of the book of Mark. Now, up until this point, Jesus has been healing people. Jesus has been doing these miracles. People are getting really excited because they assume he's the Messiah. They cannot wait to crown him king. But this work is hard work. So Jesus retreats with his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a place that was filled with these pools that people could relax and bathe in. Additionally, there were several statues and temples around that made this sort of a pagan religious center um, for the non-Jewish people. It's a good place to escape the Jewish crowds, in other words. And it's here, while Jesus is relaxing with his disciples, that he turns to them and asks them a question. Who do people say that I am? Now, the disciples kind of mumbled through some answers. They said, well, some say Moses, others say Elijah, some say a prophet, some say some other things. And after a pause, Jesus then says to them, but who do you say I am? Peter immediately speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. He goes on and on to say how Jesus is the anointed son of God. Jesus applauds him for this. Now that Peter has named who he is, Jesus decides it's time to tell Peter and the other disciples the implications of what that means. He says, I want to go to Jerusalem, and when I am there, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to die. And then after three days, I will be resurrected. Now, I love the way that Mark, the narrator, describes this. He says after Jesus' words, Jesus said all this quite openly. So openly, in fact, that Peter is offended. He stands up after hearing Jesus talk about his death and says, No, you don't have to die. We'll fight by your side. And Jesus responds with these words, Get behind me, Satan. Now, it's a rough day when Jesus calls you Satan. I mean, that's, let's just be honest about that, right? But Peter tries to get Jesus to admit that he won't die and that he doesn't have to die. But Jesus is like, you understand that all human beings die, right? I'm no different. I'm going to die and it's okay. Now, there are a few more chapters between Mark 8 and Mark 15, but eventually we arrive at that next main event in Mark's gospel. And it's here that Jesus is put on a corrupt trial and asked if he's the son of God. He says, I am. They find him guilty. They sentence him to crucifixion. And Jesus is nailed to a cross and he dies. For 15 chapters, Jesus taught us in Mark's gospel what it was like to live before death and also what it's like to live through death. And I've heard Christians argue back and forth over and over again about why Jesus had to die. This is where you get into a lot of lofty theological ideas like penal substitutionary atonement theory and just other things about violence of human beings and all of these other things. 
I have found the most realistic and satisfying answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die to be this? Because Jesus was a human being. And all human beings die. And rather than using some sort of get out of humanity free card, Jesus goes fully into death just like you and I will eventually have to do. And because Jesus accepted that, he found a life that was worth living before death. He found a life that was ultimately inspiring all because he embraced his own mortality. And the life of Jesus shows us that there is an abundance of inspiration when we embrace our own mortality. And when you consider this planet and the life that you and I are living on it and all of the wonderful, beautiful things that make us enjoy the days we are alive. And at the same time, we consider all of the horrible, frightening, terrifying, and sad things that make us cry to the heavens, Lord, how long, how long will you allow us to suffer? This life is found in between and at those moments. And while these days mean very different things to very different people over very different times, the one constant has been that the days that you are given are temporary. They don't last forever on this planet, at least. And while Kohelet looks at it and is overwhelmed with despair by looking at just the sheer volume of death on the planet. There are several people, including Jesus Christ, who look at this life in all of its temporary existence and declare that it is good to be alive. When God created the heavens and the earth, God set into motion all of these things that would eventually lead to our reality and the consistent theme through Genesis is that God looks at this reality with all of its highs and lows and declares that it is good. My brothers and sisters, may we trust the proclamation of God and accept that our temporary existence is good. May you find life before death, life that is overwhelmed with beauty and love, and joy, and happiness. May you be a person who considers others and loves them compassionately, who gives themselves over to sacrificial love in order to make this world a better place. And may you and me embrace our own mortality and find the abundance of inspiration of so many before us, and so many who are living with us today. May we be inspired to see and embrace Jesus Christ in all of our temporary days. 